Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray this morning that by your spirit you will help us to understand at your word. Help us to apply it for your praise and for your glory. Amen. Do you ever watch uh, PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions? I watch it occasionally just for the entertainment. Um, although from time to time, well, most of the time I guess, it's like children in the playground uh, going at each other. It's complete chaos. And you get the speaker of the house uh, in his jolly accent. I want to hear what is being said, and so do uh, your constituents. So unless you can be quiet, there's the door. Or you remember the one uh, before him who became famous, really, for that uh, phrase that he would repeat often. Order! Order! There was chaos, or there is chaos constantly uh, in the houses And that phrase, order, is what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church this morning. As we uh, move through this letter, we've seen that Paul has addressed divisions within the church. He's addressed sex, marriage, and relationships. He's addressed lawsuits that Christians had against other Christians. He's addressed issues with food offered to idols And now as we get to chapter 11 and we move through to chapter 14, Paul is tackling issues within the gathered worship service. But before he gets to the first issue that he addresses within the gathered worship, he says this in verse 2, I am so glad that you always keep at me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. It's quite uh, an unusual thing for Paul to say as he's, as he's gone through this letter, one thing after another, uh, addressing problems. But he says to them, I praise you for remembering me and all that I had taught and passed on to you. They know the teachings of the faith, but Paul wants them to live them out in the right way. So if you've got your Bible still open from the reading, it'd be really helpful to keep it open just because it's a long passage. There's lots in it. And let me say right at the beginning before we get into it, you will probably have lots of questions and we're not going to cover everything in this passage this morning. So if you want to send me an email or speak to me about a question that you may have that's not been answered this morning, please do that and I will do my best to answer those questions. But the first thing that we see this morning in verse 3 to 16 is remember your head. One Bible commentator says this, there are two major difficulties frequently encountered in Bible study. Some passages are hard to understand and so engage the mind at full stretch as we try to work out their meaning. Other passages are hard to accept and so engage the will at full stretch as we try to respond to them in obedience. This first part, certainly, of our passage this morning fits into both categories. We're stretched as we try and work out what he means, and we're stretched as we try and live that out in our lives and in the life of the church. But there seems to be some issue with how the men and the women are behaving in the gathered worship. 
We've taught and seen how Christians are free in Christ. There is a freedom that we have. Yet that freedom was being expressed in the church in ways that were unhelpful and were actually causing harm both within the church and it was impacting the witness of the church in the community and culture that they lived. There is disorder and Paul is calling the church to be one of order. And there seems from uh, these verses that the distinctions between the sexes is being blurred. In their newfound freedom, uh, they seem to be forgetting about the cultural differences that, that are in Corinth. So it was normal for a woman to wear a head covering, a scarf, whatever that may be. It showed, um, certainly for a, a married woman, that she honored her husband. Uncovered um, was uh, single, and if they chose not to wear one at all, uh, there were other connotations uh, around that. And for the men, they were not to wear head coverings. Yet as we read this, it seems that that had been switched. The men were praying and prophesying with head coverings on, and the women were praying and prophesying without head coverings on. And in doing so, they were blurring the distinctions between uh, the sexes, which was leaving uh, or leading to a bad witness. And so Paul begins to correct this in verse 3 with this theological statement. But there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Depending on your version, man and woman might read husband or wife. Because it can be read both ways. The word for husband and wife can be husband or wife or man or woman. But again, this is the difficulty with this passage. We're not 100% sure on what Paul is meaning. So it could be that Paul has this general principle for men and women, but he, he has in mind also a specific example of it worked out in marriage with husband and wife. But there are three relationships that he mentions, and each one, he uses this word head. So what does he mean by this word head? Well, it could mean physical head. It could mean head as in source, the, the head of a river, the source of the river, the idea being origin. So we go back to Genesis, man. Um, woman comes from man, so man being the head, the source of the woman. Or it thirdly could mean uh, authority over. And we all know what that means. We all understand that. The head of the school, the head of a department. It's that idea of having authority over. And so we look elsewhere in the New Testament and where Paul uses that phrase head uh, in reference to Christ. It seems to be that he uses it in the sense of the third one with authority over. So in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body. The church, Ephesians 1, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Ephesians 5, for the head, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the body of which he is the saviour. So it seems 
that here in Corinthians, Paul is using that phrase head to mean authority over. And each head is to be honored. So with the men wearing head coverings in the worship service and with women not wearing head coverings, they were both dishonoring the heads. And so Paul, with that statement, it is showing them that that is not how it should be. He's saying, uh, we're to submit to our heads, we're to honor our heads. But as we do that, and as people have often said, that, uh, that doesn't mean that that demeans anyone. It isn't demeaning uh, to submit to our heads. It doesn't make anyone a second-class citizen. And Paul sort of shows that in the relationship of God the Father and Christ the Son. Because in that relationship, Jesus, as he lived on this earth, he didn't submit to the Father reluctantly, but he willingly submitted to the will of the Father. He delighted uh, to live uh, under uh, his head. We see that in the garden, don't we, just before Jesus is arrested, as he prays. Not my will, but yours be done. And so would we say of Christ that he uh, is a second class person uh, of the Godhead? Of course we wouldn't say that about Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are, are equally God. One God. Yet we see in Scripture that each has a distinct role. So we go back to chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians uh, verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things come and through whom we live. Do you see the distinction there? One God, yet the Father from whom all things come, and Jesus the Son, Christ, through whom all things come. We can survey the Scriptures and see that yes, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each uh, have distinctions uh, within the roles. Equally God, yet there is difference. And so for God to be the head of Christ doesn't mean that Jesus is any less God. It simply means that in his love for us and his love and obedience to the Father, Jesus submits himself to the headship of the Father and seeks to bring him glory in all he does. And so Christ is the head of the church. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. Paul goes on to show this in creation, uh, in verse 7 to 9, a man should not wear anything on his head when worshipping. For a man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And a woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. A man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. We go back to Genesis and the creation and we see that man was made first. 
and woman came from man. But both are made in the image of God. Both are of equal worth, yet both are different. The woman was created out of man to be the helper for man. The man is the head of woman, both having different roles. They are equal but different. There is no difference in worth or status. All in Christ are equal, yet by God's design, there are differences. But just before the Corinthian men certainly um, get above themselves and think um, behave, their behavior will be uh, in an unhelpful way, as sort of oppressive uh, as men and husbands, Paul gives us verse 11. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman, and everything comes from God. Ever since uh, Adam and Eve were made, man has come from woman. And so Paul here reminds the Corinthians that there is uh, an interdependency. Man needs woman, woman needs man. And the Corinthians were blurring those lines uh, between uh, the sexes and therefore they were dishonoring their heads, bringing uh, about disorder in worship. It's not an easy thing to wrap our heads around this idea of headship and we're not quite sure what Paul's meaning in certain areas so we're making educated guesses to a certain extent. But it's quite clear, I think, from creation that there is an order uh, to things. God has designed things to work in a certain way. And so to many, this idea of headship is a, a difficult concept to grasp. In our world today, the idea of headship uh, is seen as sort of an old-fashioned uh, idea. Well, it is old because it goes all the way back to creation. But that is how God designed his creation to be. There is nothing oppressive in the way that God has designed things. Women are not and were not uh, second-class citizens in the church. Because as we've seen, they found great freedom in Christ. To be a woman uh, 2,000 years ago in Jewish culture meant that as you went to synagogue, men and women would sit separate. Women were not allowed to contribute in any way uh, to, uh, to the synagogue uh, there. They were seen as inferior uh, to men. The men would pray often, thank you God that I am not a woman. That is how uh, the culture was then. But then came Christ. And we know what uh, Christ did and how he lived, he welcomed and accepted women. Uh, they were part of his gang of followers. He treated them uh, with the utmost respect and dignity. And it's no different uh, as the church was formed and grew. that The separation between the sexes was gone. Men and women, both together, 
uh, in the service uh, of gathered worship, both men and women praying and prophesying as we read in those verses, whatever praying and prophesying meant uh, at that time. Men and women are equal, uh, of equal worth in the kingdom of God. Paul says, doesn't he, in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, both men and women are of equal worth. Yet, there are differences between man and woman, and there are different roles that men and women are to do. We must acknowledge the way that God has designed his creation, and we must seek by his spirit to live in obedience to what his word says to us. Because we want to live in a way that honors our head. That is the first issue that Paul addresses within the life of the church. Men and women have freedom in Christ. They're equal in Christ. Yet there are distinctions and they must be upheld. The second issue that Paul addresses comes in verse 17. Have you ever been in a church service uh, and thought, this is bad? This is bad. Uh, I suppose it happens from time to time. We, we might attend a church service and somebody's given a testimony and they've been given two minutes. Let's hear a two-minute testimony from somebody and 20 minutes later they're still in full flow and it's going on. Uh, or um, we're hearing such a bad sermon that is so unbiblical that we think, what on earth is going on? Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. I'm not sure. I remember when I was a children's youth worker and I was leading an all-age service. Um, and I thought it was okay. I'd gone home that day and thought, that, that went, well, that was okay. I got pulled in the day after uh, to the vicar's study and got a proper dressing down uh, for that service. We may have been in those services and thought, this isn't, Great. It's not as it should be, but there have been other positives within uh, the service. And that's why these verses uh, are so shocking. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Paul uh, looks and has heard all that is going on in the service in the Corinthian church and says there is nothing I can't praise you about anything in fact Paul says it would be better if you stayed at home and didn't bother coming to the church because when you gather you're doing more harm than good so this is serious stuff that Paul is saying to the Corinthian church there is a serious error uh, in the worship service and especially all the more serious because it involves the Lord's Supper. So here's the problem at verse 18. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. Of all the places to have divisions, the church shouldn't be that place. 
There should be no division within the church. Yet that is what is happening within the Corinthian church. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, uh, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. It, it's shocking to Paul what is going on in the church. There are divisions at the Lord's table of all places. The picture of unity. And there are divisions. And Paul says, what, what do you want me to say about that? Am I to praise you? Absolutely not. It seems that the wealthy Christians were eating uh, before those uh, who were less wealthy arrived, uh, leaving them scraps to eat, leaving them hungry. And Paul cannot believe what is going on. Christ came to call people from all nations to himself, into his body, the church. In him, there is unity. And no better and more beautifully is that seen than as a church shares in bread and wine. At communion, all are equal. Rich and poor, slave and free, come to the Lord's table knowing that they are a sinner saved by grace. This picture of self-giving had become a time of self-indulgence. And Paul has nothing good to say about what is going on there. So he reminds them of the significance of communion, of the Lord's Supper in verse 23 to 26. And we're very familiar with those words uh, every time we have our Baptist version of communion. It was Christ who instituted this uh, remembrance of the salvation uh, of God. He instituted it at Passover where they remembered God's rescue uh, from Egypt. And Jesus is saying, now this is uh, the new Passover as you remember your rescue from sin and death in me. And he took the bread, he took uh, a loaf, which takes us back to chapter 10. And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Communion is a picture of unity that comes from being in Christ. It's a picture and it's a reminder that we have fellowship with Jesus, but in him we have fellowship with one another. In him we are united, a people uh, from all backgrounds, all walks of life, all nationalities, united in Jesus. It's that communion uh, that, we're, that we look back. It's that communion we're reminded uh, that Jesus' body uh, was broken on the cross that his blood was shed because of our sin. At communion, we look forward. We look forward to that day when Jesus comes again and we will sit at his table and eat with him. Verse 26, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus will one day return and we, his people, will sit in, at his table in his kingdom. And at communion, we, so we look back, we look forward, but then we also look around and within. Verse 27, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. As we share communion together, we should look within. That we don't uh, share communion in a flippant, unworthy manner. But that we come having examined ourselves, recognizing uh, that we are sinners and in Christ we are forgiven. And it's not examine ourselves uh, and come only when we are perfect because that's not possible. It's examine ourselves, recognizing uh, that we are sinners and we need God's grace. And we look around. We share together in what Christ has done. Communion, uh, it is not for the sinless. It is for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so we must come humbly and not presumptuously to the table of the Lord. And so we have this picture and it should remind us of the unity we have uh, in him. And as we and live that out, that will honor Christ, our head. That, that means we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to live that out because in him we are united. And so as we look around this room, as we look at those people who are trusting in Jesus, we are united with that person in Christ. And so we must live as Christ has called his people to live. And that is to love one another as Christ has loved his church. One commentator writes, it has been said that love for those who like us is ordinary. Love for those who are like us is narcissistic. Love for those who are unlike us is extraordinary. Love for those who dislike us is revolutionary. Christ calls us to an extraordinary, revolutionary love that is different from anything seen in the world. So when people look at us here at Trinity, is that what they see? Do they see a people united in Christ? Are we working hard at building relationships with others within uh, the people of God? Especially those who we find hard and difficult. Can we say with Paul, as he said in chapter 10, I don't just do what is best for me, I do what is best for others. So that many 
may be saved? Are we willing to sacrifice our own preferences in order to be welcoming of other Christians who are different? Jesus said in John 13, by this everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Christian love is costly, but it builds deeper, a deeper fellowship which will be fruitful for the life of the church and will be an amazing witness to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his obedience as he came to this earth and died such a horrific death so that we might know forgiveness and new life. Thank you that in him we are forgiven, that we have fellowship with you. And thank you that in Christ we are united together as your people. We have fellowship with one another in Christ. Help us as your people here to build on that unity, to grow in our love for one another as we seek to live our lives in such a way that honors you and brings you all the glory. Help us to do that, we pray. Amen.